Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, Fitch Ratings Lead Sovereign Analyst for China. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Grace Wu, a longtime colleague of mine. Grace is Fitch Ratings Head of Greater China Banks and is based in Hong Kong. Prior to joining Fitch, she spent over a decade as an equity analyst at Daiwa Capital, Nomura, and CLSA. Grace, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Hi, Andrew. I thought we might use our time today to discuss the banking sector dimensions to the ongoing property slowdown in China, and also do a bit of stock taking on how you see the balance of risks in the financial system versus a few years ago. That's obviously quite a bit to cover, so why don't we dive right in? Let's do it. Global markets have sharpened their gaze on China's economy in recent months. One major theme has been the slowdown in the property sector, which prompted us here at Fitch, as well as many other forecasters, to trim down our growth projections for China for this year and next year. The poster child for these changing conditions is, of course, China Evergrande, a major property developer on the brink of default. Now we've discussed Evergrande in many forums, including a webinar and related research, which viewers or listeners can access on our website. So today, why don't we widen our focus and discuss Chinese banks' exposure to the property sector more broadly? Grace, in your analysis, how large is the direct exposure that Chinese banks have to the property sector? And perhaps, do you consider this to be a big number in a broader international context? For the sector overall,、um, Chinese banks have about seven percent of their loans to property developers, and about nineteen percent of loans、uh, to residential mortgages. However, if you were to include types of loans that may be collateralized by real estate,、uh, which is quite common for SME loans, for example, then that can increase the percentage to up to forty percent. In addition to lending exposures, there's also、uh, bond investment、um, exposures. Luckily for Chinese banks in general, most of their bond investments are in government or quasi-government entities. So their exposures to、uh, property developer bonds,、uh, we, we think, is quite limited. There are also other types of indirect exposure to the property market.、Uh, for example, it may come from off-balance sheet financing in the form of trust loans or wealth management products. You know, if we really want to widen that scope, there's also potential knock-on impact on you know smaller businesses and, and home buyers in general, and also construction companies. So, in a way, yes, we can say that the direct exposure is limited, but the indirect exposure. Can be quite broad. It does sound like one can arrive at quite consequential figures、uh, for the financial sector, especially if you look at the indirect exposures. On the macro side, we've noted that while the authorities have gradually eased macro policy settings to cushion a broader activity slowdown, they have thus far, at least, been quite tentative in responding directly to the property sector stress、uh, that has been taking place in recent months. But amid rising growth pressures and heightened refinancing risks for high yield developers. We believe the policy calculus may be shifting, so we're now expecting further easing of macro policy before the year ends, including a cut to the triple R and a more concerted effort to boost credit growth. We also think the implementation of some property-related regulations may be temporarily scaled back. In our view, we think that this kind of policy response is sufficient to keep GDP growth above. Five percent next year. There are certainly downside risks if policy moves are insufficient to bolster market confidence. I guess, in your view, 
what is your current baseline for Chinese banks under the current property market stress in China? And perhaps also strictly as a hypothetical scenario analysis, in your mind, what kind of property market shock would pose a material risk to China's financial sector? Well, at the moment, we do not expect systematic risks arising uh, over property lending, given that banks generally have modest loan-to-value ratio on these type of lending. Uh, mortgage lending, for example, the implied loan-to-value ratio for the sector overall is only about 40%. So in that sense, there is a bit of buffer uh, when it comes to property price declines. So in our estimate, uh, really, it would typically need you know, something in the tune of 30 or even 40% of nationwide property price declined to have a meaningful impact on the sector's overall asset quality. In fact, uh, in one of the recent findings from the PBOC, where they have stressed the MPLs for property developers at their mortgage MPLs, uh, in that finding, the conclusion is that even if property developer MPLs were to increase by 15 percentage points and mortgage loan MPLs were to increase by 10 percentage points, the overall system capital adequacy ratio would only drop uh, to about 12.3% from 14.4%. That said, we need to be mindful that the impact will most certainly be much more severe for some of these smaller banks, especially for regional banks where there would be higher risk for uh, loan concentration and weaker buffers uh, to begin with. Uh, and it's also quite typical for these regional banks to have a heavier uh, geographical focus. So for banks that are, for example, uh, more focused in some of the lower tier cities where you know, it's possible to have greater fluctuations in, in property prices, that will make these banks more vulnerable. So for the system overall, it may be manageable, but there will be banks that will be more vulnerable in under that kind of a scenario. And what about the banks under Fitch's coverage? I guess we tend to rate some of the larger banks in the system. What is your baseline and how they will fare or how they might fare uh, in the event of some kind of property shock? For the large state banks, their exposures are quite limited, uh, so we do not expect uh, material impact to their asset quality. For some mid-sized banks where, for example, their current exposure is already exceeding the property lending cap, we would expect them to be under more pressure. That said, we don't necessarily think there is downside to our current viability ratings, which we assign um, for the banks to reflect their intrinsic standalone uh, credit profile. Reason being, we're not rating Chinese banks based on reported MPL numbers. Uh, we are applying um, negative adjustments to reflect the fact that we think there is still a potential for understatement of asset impairment recognition, and there are still limitations around financial disclosure and transparency in China that would render the reported MPL ratios less meaningful. At Fitch, we've argued or been arguing that at least part of this property slowdown is policy-induced. Uh, you had the now very well-reported three red lines policy, but also, as you just mentioned, there was initiatives, albeit over a period of several years, to put in place property lending caps. Did you or have you seen any evidence that banks 
were already modifying or changing their lending habits as a result of some of these uh, policies that were going to be implemented in the future? Well, in, in the first half, there's uh, quite a big decline in terms of property developer loans. Arguably, that was also made worse by you know, credit events around Evergrande, for example. But the fact that with the introduction of property lending caps introduced at the beginning of 2021, banks really have taken on a, a much more cautious stance when it comes to property developer loans and also residential mortgages in general. And that's continued in, into third quarter. But going into fourth quarter and, and into 2022, we do do expect some moderate loosening uh, around these type of lending. That said, we don't expect any aggressive credit loosening, in part because there is still constraint over bank capital. But also more importantly, we think the regulators' intention to maintain a stable system leverage over time is still very important in terms of the regulatory development that is underpinning uh, the improvements in, in the operating environment for Chinese banks. I guess maybe at this stage, it's worth taking a step back and talking a little bit about the broader structural issues taking place in China's banking sector. For many years, Fitch has been vocal in its concerns about the rapid pace of credit growth in China. Could you perhaps give us a quick update on where your views stand on some of these issues today compared with, say, a few years ago? And maybe just to organize the conversation a bit, it might be helpful if you could first comment on some of the areas where you think risks have receded. Sure. I think some of the main areas in, in terms of improvements has been um, on overall system leverage. The rapid pace in terms of increase that we've seen in the earlier years around 2010, um, that's not been replicated in recent years. In fact, we've now started to see a stabilization in system leverage. Uh, now, bearing in mind 2020 was a bit of an exceptional year because of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. But our current expectation is that the system leverage will be maintained at around 260, 265% uh, uh, of GDP. And also, so in terms of the components of, of credit, we think that has also improved, where in the past, a lot of the loan growth may be driven by the corporate sector. In recent years, there's been an obvious shift in terms of emphasis over retail lending and micro-enterprise lending in general, given the corporate deleveraging campaign that's been introduced in the past couple of years. More importantly, I think contagion risks for the system have improved. For example, if we look at off-balance sheet wealth management products, at the end of 2020, it's about 25% of GDP. Still a large number at the end of the day, but it's down quite sharply from 36% of GDP in 2017. So that reduces the potential for contagion risk within the financial system. And within banks, the interbank wealth management products, uh, which represents the amount of wealth management holdings that uh, may be cross-held by individual banks, that proportion have also fallen quite sharply. At the peak, almost 20% of WMPs were, were held among banks in 2016. And that has dropped to just around 2% at the end of 2020. So that reduces the risk for contagion within the banking system. And also the banks have been very active in recognizing and resolving MPLs in the past couple of years. So 
These would be the main improvements that we have seen in the sector since 2017. Now, there are still some lingering issues. For example, banks are still subject to some policy influence uh, over the lending decisions and regulatory forbearance. For example, that's still an issue that impacts the banking sector. Yeah, just to to step back and, and revisit some of your comments about leverage, I think from the sovereign perspective, similar to you, clearly 2020 was a setback. Uh, there was a major slowdown in nominal GDP growth at the same time that credit growth was, the authorities did their best to, to maintain broadly stable credit growth or to, to accelerate it a bit. So we did have a, a big step up in leverage last year. This year with the strong recovery Notwithstanding some of the, the recent issues, there's been a sharp acceleration in nominal GDP growth. Uh, credit growth has been slowing. I think the official number is around 10%. So we have seen leverage decline in the last, I think, three or four quarters in China. I guess one big question mark is about next year, uh, because we are penciling in growth returning to something slightly above 5 in real terms, a little bit of inflation. I mean, it does suggest that, you know, perhaps there could be an incremental step up in leverage this, next year. I guess from your perspective, you know, what are the constraints that banks have to significantly boosting credit support going forward? Or are there constraints in your mind? There certainly are. It's around bank capital. The Chinese authorities have uh, designated 19 Chinese banks as domestic systematically important banks, DSIPs, in October. What this means is, you know, these banks are defined as, you know, quote unquote, too big to fail. And as a result, you know, there are uh, additional capital requirements for these banks in order to ensure that they have sufficient buffers. What this also means is that because banks will now need to set aside more capital, that will reduce their ability to grow. Because there are only a few ways for banks to increase their capital ratio. The most obvious one being, you know, new issuance and capital raising. At times that can prove challenging, especially when it comes to equity raising for the Chinese banks. So then the second main way is to reduce the asset base and constraining future growth. These requirements, in our view, will constrain the growth prospects for Chinese banks in the next couple of years. The designation as a domestic systematically important bank imposes capital requirements that you think are going to constrain banks' ability to significantly boost credit growth in the future? Yes, because these 19 institutions, collectively, they make up over 60% of the system's banking assets. Now, of course, the larger state banks are in a relatively better positions because their existing capital ratios are higher. But there are quite a few mid-sized banks which are designated as DSIPs currently, which have very limited capital buffers above the minimum requirements. So if I summarize some of your key points on the broader system developments. I guess one takeaway that I have is that, in your view, contagion risks have receded in recent years. And then the second one is that there's a setback during the COVID period, but broadly, the authorities are making efforts to stabilize broader system leverage. I guess these are some of the positive developments that have happened in recent years. To round things out, I'd be curious to hear about any areas where you think financial risks remain high 
uh, or perhaps unchanged, and, and maybe even where you think new risks may be emerging? Well, there are still risks with regulatory forbearance uh, and state-owned enterprise lending more generally, because despite the corporate deleveraging campaign, it's still quite difficult for banks to you know, reduce their, their exposure to state-owned enterprise lending because of the, the way the Chinese economy is structured. Ultimately, there are still a lot of lending that is extended to state-owned or state-related entities, uh, and it takes time to resolve issues around that. Newer and emerging risks, I think it would be around consumer lending more broadly, especially when it comes to lending uh, outside of uh, residential mortgages. So these would be typically unsecured consumer loans, for example, uh, credit card lending. Uh, Credit card lending in China has increased to about 8.6% of GDP at the end of 2020. And that's actually surpassed most major economies. And and the pace in which household debt um, has increased in China in recent years is, is also something that we're monitoring very closely. Thanks for those insights. I was hoping we could also speak briefly about the reported NPL ratios in China. It's certainly not a new topic, Uh, But it does still generate quite a bit of controversy, especially when we're speaking with overseas investors. So to to summarize the view, uh, reported NPLs by Chinese banks are incredibly low, and they also don't really seem to fluctuate very much, no matter what business cycle China happens to be in. How do you respond to these observations? Uh, Do you think they're fair observations? And, And what's your own approach to interpreting NPL figures First of all, I think it's important to recognize that the reported MPL we see being quoted in the press, for example, that that is an ending balance, right? So every year there's new MPLs that, that go into that balance. At the same time, there are MPLs that's being resolved. And what the Chinese banking system has done in recent years is they have quite aggressively recognized but also resolved MPLs at the same time. So in simple terms, you've got new MPLs that are coming into the balance, but at the same time, because MPLs are being resolved or written off, get excluded uh, from the ending balance. So that's why when you look at the reported MPL ratio, it always seems to be quite stable. Now, I want to you know, throw in some numbers in there just to keep the conversation going. In terms of the scale of MPLs that's been resolved um, since 2017 uh, up to the end of 2020, there's roughly a, about 8.8 trillion RMB worth of MPL that's been resolved during this period. And that compares to an MPL balance of about 2.8 trillion RMB uh, at the end of June 2021. And the amount of MPLs that's been resolved during 2017 to 2020, just to put things in perspective, um, that exceeded the combined total of MPL resolutions for the previous 12 years. So in short, what they've resolved in the past kind of four years uh, has exceeded uh, the amount of MPLs that's been written off in the past decade. I think that, that that is quite a substantial reason why you know the reported MPL ratio looks like it doesn't fluctuate much. In fact, the authorities have guided um, that even for 2021 and 2022, they still expect banks to be resolving the same amount of MPLs, if not higher. The amount of MPLs that were resolved in 2020 alone was about $3 trillion. I have one last question for you before you go. 
In recent years, China has taken some major steps towards opening up its domestic financial sector to foreign firms. I'm curious, in your mind, what the role of foreign banks in China is today and how you think this is going to evolve going forward. When it comes to foreign banks in, in China, I think it's often misleading to look at market share. I'll give you those numbers anyway, but in short, you know, foreign banks in aggregate uh, make up about 1% of system profits, about 2% of system assets. reason why I say that it's misleading to focus on market share is because given China's scale, it's just unrealistic to think that the foreign banks would of any meaningful market share gains in an overall sense. But where foreign banks are competing is they are competing in fee business, especially wealth-related fees, because for the foreign banks, this is where they think they have more of a competitive edge in terms of whether it's product innovation or just the ability to offer more cross-border financing options for domestic customers. So... Realistically, I think this is where the foreign banks will compete. And in in that process, hopefully that increases the overall scope and breadth and depth in terms of wealth management products that are available in China. So foreign banks, either now or in the future, it's unrealistic that they're going to compete on balance sheet. So looking at the size of foreign banks in the system is really not the relevant metric to assess how they're performing in China or their prospects in China. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, because I believe foreign banks will always be very selective when it comes to onshore growth within China. Well, Grace, thanks so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Andrew. Same here. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at FitchRatings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care, and until next time.